Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest, David Wilkins, is one of the foremost thinkers on the legal profession today. I could spend a lot of time recounting his many roles and accomplishments at Harvard and beyond. A simple recitation of accomplishments doesn't capture his inspirational story or the enormity of his contributions to the profession, nor does it capture his intellect, quick wit, warm personality, or joyful presence. You're going to have to listen to the conversation to catch those. He is without a doubt the most recognizable voice in the legal industry today. I first heard David speak at the initial LCLD conference in 2009. It was an inspiring and thoughtful message on the importance of diversity in the legal industry. On our conversation today, we talked about David's journey from the south side of Chicago as the son and grandson of pioneering black lawyers to his clerkship with Thurgood Marshall, an eventual decision to enter teaching at Harvard. We talked about how he thinks lawyers can be a part of helping us solve the huge problems facing humanity against a backdrop of looming generational change, digitization, and technology. And we talked about why he thinks the legal profession needs more sophisticated focus on the care and development of our people in the same way that many other industries are doing. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed participating in it. Before we get started, David, that is a fabulous painting behind <laughs> so you. So I, I, I often told my students all last year when we were all virtual that I'm not cool enough to make a cool Zoom background. So I have to have actually real backgrounds that are nice. So it is a fabulous painting and you can probably see it's gigantic. Yeah. And the story of this just very quickly is that that was one of the first paintings that we ever bought. It's by a Black American artist who actually lives here in Boston. He actually started out as the art teacher at Milton Academy, which is a school you may have heard of. Uh, his name is Robert Freeman. And the thing is, it's enormous. And for years, we had no wall big enough to put such an enormous painting on. So I always say that every house I've ever bought has to have a wall big enough for this painting. And it also has to be painted orange because that is the color that makes the painting look the best. So, you know, this is art. It's not art imitating life. It's art driving life. <laughs> <laughs> You're right about the color of the walls, though. I, it fits beautifully on that background, though. That's fabulous. Well, Steve, you'll love this. The title of this series, he has a series of paintings that are like this. And they're called the Electric Ladyland series, which you will remember as the great Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix, album. yeah. Yes. In my study, I've got a great picture of uh, Jimi Hendrix. It's currently being reframed now, so I don't have it. Of Jimi Hendrix uh, at the Hollywood Bowl warming up. Wow. And it's, and it's just Jimi Hendrix on stage playing his guitar. I'm a huge Hendrix fan. Yeah. So Electric Ladyland is, yeah. <laughs> well, let's not get distracted. We could go okay. back and forth and Little Wing and Axis Bodle is Love, all the unknown smaller tunes, but. Anyway, we'll talk about the future of the legal profession, which may have something to do with Jimi Hendrix. We'll see. <laughs> it, it, you, never, you never know where it's going to go, do you? Uh, my guest today needs uh, no introduction, uh, David Wilkins from Harvard. David, thank you so much for joining. It's just such a delight to see you, and I look forward to our conversation. Well, thank you very much, Steve. As I told you before, we 
started recording, but I want to reiterate, I can't think of a better uh, way to spend a rainy uh, Thursday morning, which it is here in Boston, than talking to one of the most thoughtful and innovative uh, law firm leaders I've had a chance to meet over the years. And it doesn't surprise me that you're now moving into the podcasting world, because I think you both know a lot of interesting people and have a lot of interesting ways to engage them. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, as am I. Uh, it's been interesting talking to people with various perspectives on the profession and trying to sort through that. And nobody's been looking at the profession longer, I think, than you have in a more thoughtful and analytical way. Let's start, though, by talking about your background. You're born and raised in Chicago, and you come from a family of lawyers. Your father, your grandfather, your uncle were barrier-breaking lawyers generations ago. I assume the role of being a lawyer sort of ingrained in you from early on. So it seems obvious why you wanted to become a lawyer, yeah? Well, yes and no. You know, it's one of those interesting things where I think my father, who I think felt he had no choice but to become a lawyer because of his father, who was one of the first, you know, in that first generation of black lawyers in the United States. He graduated from University of Chicago Law School in, in the late 1920s or 1930, I think it was. And so my father, I think, enjoyed his legal career, but in some ways, I think he really felt he had no choice. And therefore, he actually tried very hard to make me have a choice. And so although I'm sure it was always there, I remember somebody saying to me when I was uh, applying to law school, well, of course, you're going to go to law school because that's what your father and your grandfather have done. And I remember being a little surprised by that because my father had tried so hard not to put the pressure of the family business on me. But it did give me, I think, a window into something that I've spent a lot of my time studying, as you know, Steve, which is kind of the history of Black lawyers in this country, and particularly Black lawyers who have kind of broken barriers, particularly in elite educational institutions. My father and my uncle went to Harvard Law School in the 1940s. And then in the kind of corporate world of legal practice and what that transformation has been like. So that's been a part of my history. And you clerked for Thurgood Marshall, who, as I mentioned before, is a particular hero of mine. I'm not unique of our generation for that. And I should say to our listeners, if you want to learn more about David's history, which is absolutely fascinating, go to historymakers.org. There's a it must have taken you days to record, but there's an incredible oral history of your parents, your family, your clerking with Thurgood Marshall, and on and on and on. It's just fabulous listening. But the opportunity to clerk for somebody who's so iconic must have been an incredible moment for you in your life. How did that sort of shape your approach to your own legal career and your own life's work? Well, I'll tell you, the only reason I have this job today is because when I came to law school and realized that it was possible, if you were lucky enough and worked hard enough and the stars aligned to have a clerkship with a Supreme Court justice, my goal was to clerk for Thurgood Marshall. It was not to become a Harvard law professor. I never in a million years thought that that would be what I would do. But it was because I had that experience that gave me the opportunity to get this job. It also, of course, provided an incredible window into what 
being not just a great judge, but a great lawyer could be and could accomplish in the world. And what were the things that really made Thurgood Marshall a great lawyer? And the first piece I ever wrote was called Justice as Narrative. It's a little slim thing in the Harvard Black Letter Law Journal. And it's called uh, Justice as Narrative Reflections on a Master Storyteller. And it came out of the fact that people would always ask me, well, what was it like to clerk for Thurgood Marshall? And you know, I thought I should talk about, you know, the big cases we worked on and the majesty of the Supreme Court. But really, the most important thing about that year was about four o'clock in the afternoon, Justice Marshall would walk into the room where the clerks were sitting after he'd been kind of working all day and he was ready to go home. And he would sit down in a big overstuffed chair and start to tell stories. And they were the most remarkable stories in the world. And he would tell stories about being a lawyer, but he would also tell stories about ordinary people. He'd tell stories about his childhood, about what it was like to grow up in Baltimore, segregated Baltimore at the time. And I used to think of those stories as being disconnected from his role as a judge, right? I would say, oh, there's the clerkship, and then he was a great storyteller. But what I came to realize over time was the reason he was a great judge and a great lawyer was because he was a great storyteller, which meant he was a great observer of life and able to capture the humanity of people. That's what it takes to be a great storyteller. And it turns out the law is storytelling, whether that's advocacy or whether that's judicial opinions. They're telling the story of who we are as a people, of what justice means. And so that more than anything is he taught me that that really is what is at the essence of law. And I've been trying to both help my students to tell great stories and to understand their stories and to understand the story of our profession ever since. You practiced for a few years and then moved over to Harvard. And very soon in your tenure at Harvard, really focused on the study of the legal profession. And you had to have been one of the first people to make this the focus of your academic pursuit, because we're talking a couple of years ago. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I, I, I'll say it. You don't have to. I started teaching in 1986, and that's actually a relevant fact. So Again, I I was never somebody who dreamed of being a, a law professor. I always thought law professors were people who sat around the editor's room at the Harvard Law Review and stared at the ceiling and thought about why they were smarter than Justice Holmes. And <laughs> I, I, I did spend time in the editor's room. I never thought I was smarter than Justice Holmes. And I was never thought about myself as, you know, breaking some idea of constitutional theory. So when I got the opportunity to teach, the thing I was most interested in, because I once was a real lawyer, Steve, I always have to remind people of that for four years, which actually is a lot compared to most law professors, was lawyers. But why 1986 is so important is because I'm a product of the legal education of the old let's call it golden age legal profession, right? I was trained in that way in the 19, I graduated law school in 1980, but we came out as the legal profession was transforming into the current or modern legal profession. We'll talk about the future legal profession perhaps later. And most of my friends had done what I would have done if I'd gone straight into practice, which is they'd gone into large law firms and they were now in their fourth, fifth, sixth years, something like that. And they kept telling me, this isn't what they told us this was going to be. 
you know, suddenly people are talking about, can you attract clients and are you a rainmaker and who's, uh, you know, and profits per partner and all that. They, they never taught us about that. It was all about just do really good work and be a smart person and you will succeed in the legal profession. And so I became fascinated with that transformation. At the same time, my class at Harvard Law School was about 17% female. Maybe it was 20% in 1980. By the time I came back in 1986, it was 40% women. In my class, it was perhaps, oh, let's call it 10% people of color, the vast majority of whom were black, like me. By the time I come back, it's more like 20%, many more Asian students, many more Latino students, issues we never thought about before, like disability and LGBTQ issues were coming to the fore. And I said to myself, well, what does this mean? for how we're going to prepare students to enter into this changing profession. And what does it mean about the profession? What does it mean about the role of lawyers in society? So I had started out teaching a two credit course on legal ethics. I often say I owe my job to Richard Nixon because, you know, it's because of Richard Nixon and, you know, and Watergate and the Attorney General of the United States going to jail, the Constitutional Council to the President going to jail, that the ABA required two credits of legal ethics. And most law schools, nobody wanted to teach it. They thought it was boring. They thought it was about just a bunch of rules that were meaningless or, you know, it was about being good, which they didn't understand or want to talk about. But I said, well, what if we make it about what does it mean to be a lawyer in a changing world? And I bet students will be really interested in that. And I taught it first as a two credit course. And then I said, two credits is not enough. And so I created the first four credit course on legal ethics in the history of humankind. And it still is. I just taught it for the first time on Tuesday in person for the first time in 18 months. Maybe we'll come back to that about three things. One is. What does it mean to be a lawyer? And that's partly about the rules of professional responsibility. What does it mean to be a professional versus some other kind of worker in the world? Two, who are lawyers and what do they do? Meaning the sociology of the legal profession. And third and most important, what are survival skills that you need as a new lawyer building your career? And building around that is kind of what I've spent the last 35 years doing. You know, I'm sitting here having flashbacks. I also graduated from law school in 1980. And I think I'm one of those people, while you and I didn't know each other at the time, the description of your conversation with your friends maps so closely to conversations I was having with my friends about the changing profession. I went to University of Virginia for law school. This is not what Virginia taught us law profession was going to be. Wait, what? What's happening here? You know? And we think so much about change in the profession now, and we're going to talk about that here in a second, that we sometimes overlook the fact that the profession has been changing for a long period of time, maybe not as rapidly as we would like, but it has been changing. And, and as the demographics of the profession change, that in turn drives change as well with new perspectives and new ways of thinking. And I presume you've seen that over your career at Harvard as new generations come in. There's no question. One of the greatest parts about my job is I have to stay young or at least try to <laughs> stay in tune with young people because I'm constantly surrounded by these incredibly bright young people who have new ideas. It's like everything else, Steve. It's both 
True and not true that everything is changing. Uh, you know, of course, they come in with new ideas, new approaches to technology, new life experiences. By the way, I believe firmly that this pandemic is going to fundamentally realign what this new generation is going to think about the world, much in the same way that the Great Depression and World War II transformed the way your and my parents' generation focused around the world. But it's also true that there are a lot of common ideas, values, fears, hopes, and dreams that people come into the profession. And again, I think one of the things that's so fascinating about this moment is trying to understand these forces of change and continuity and how they connect together. And they're not in balance, they move in different ways, and how that is reshaping the future in a way that will be different, but should not be totally different than those ideals that you and I were taught about what it means to be a professional and the rule of law and the importance of stability and tradition and continuity that we were taught when we were in law school in the 1970s. No, I think that's right. You talked about the impact of the pandemic on how people approach the profession in law. You mentioned earlier, last year was completely virtual at Harvard. I assume you're back live now. Knock on wood. I don't This is a podcast. You can't see me knocking on my head. But yes, we are starting completely in person with masks. So listen, I taught in person for 34 years. And then on March 13th, 2020, we were kicked completely online. And the best decision Harvard Law School made was in June of 2020, they said, we're going to be totally virtual for at least the fall term. And it ended up being the whole year. And it forced us to completely rethink what we were doing. Because by the way, we also said, and we're going to charge the students full tuition. That put a lot mm -hmm. of pressure on us to make sure that right. we delivered a quality online experience. And as I told my students on the first day of that first semester in September 2020, I said, we're going to treat this class the way the advice that I got, and maybe some of you will get at your wedding, which is we're going to have something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. So the something old is we're going to try as best we can to capture what was best about being in person and the traditional ways in which we taught. But if you just simply try to transform the in-person world online, it's a disaster. So then we're going to embrace everything that's new that the technology allows us to do. And we're gonna do that by borrowing or more accurately stealing every good idea we can from adult education to other kinds of online interaction to gaming. I almost got my students avatars. We ended up not being able to do that <laughs> these conference meeting programs, but we were gonna try everything. And then we were gonna to refuse to be blue. In other words, we weren't going to feel sorry for ourselves. We were gonna move forward in the new. Now flash forward a year. It's now September, 2021. We are all in person, but we are teaching in masks. But I decided in June that if all we were gonna do was to go back to 2019, that would be a real waste. First of all, we can't go back totally to 2019. The pandemic is still here. And moreover, we learned a lot of things about how to integrate, about how to do virtual things well. So for example, in our first class, 
students are all in person, but we had three big video screens in the front of the class. I had four guests zoom in from Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, the general counsel, the head of epidemiology, a chief cancer doctor, and the head of employment law to talk about vaccine mandates. How should we do them? What should be the requirements? Should there be exemptions, et cetera? And then we used some virtual tools we learned about last year, one of which is called Poll Everywhere, in which we had the students asking questions while I was engaging in a panel discussion with the four guests in which they could vote the questions, they could see the questions on the screen, they could vote them up or down. We took polls, we put them in breakout sessions. Here's my point, and this is I'm saying now because we're gonna talk about lawyers of the legal profession. If you think that the best thing we can do is to go back to 2019 and forget 2020 ever happened, you are not only missing out on tremendous potential that we can learn about what works best in the online world and how to utilize those tools, but you will not be exciting young people who after all, live a lot of their lives in the virtual world already and that's fabulous that had to be immensely satisfying to your students who are seeing this new approach to teaching that had to be very very exciting for them well i hope so steve you always have to ask the consumers not the producers but i can tell you this the level of engagement in my class was higher than i think it's ever been for a first class and I think it's partly because the students are so happy to be back. You know, we were pretty blase. I bet you and I as third year law students, these are all third year law students or LLM students. They don't take a minute for granted anymore. And I was finding more ways to engage them than I would have done in a standard classroom. And so for that, I think it's very exciting. That's incredible. Let me sort of riff off of that a little bit. You did a presentation, a TED Talk, that has the most fabulous title, Reimagining Law in a World on Fire, which I recommend to all of our listeners. You can find it on YouTube. And you talked about how the legal profession ought to respond to a triad of crises, public health, economic, and social and racial justice. And I won't ask you to repeat all 18 minutes of the presentation, I'd simply refer people to it, but give us your premise a little bit. We've got these three sort of threads going on. How do you see the legal profession responding and adapting to these change agents? So first of all, I always have to give credit where credit is due. So The World on Fire comes from a great book, which I recommend to your listeners by Rebecca Henderson, who's a university professor at Harvard, which is the highest rank of professor well above my own pay grade. The book, which she published presciently in January 2020, is called Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. And the premise is that we have been practicing kind of a form of extractive capitalism in which a smaller and smaller percentage of people are extracting a larger and larger percentage of the world's resources. And ultimately, that's unsustainable, even from the perspective of business. And she's actually a business school professor at Harvard Business School. And I think that goes to kind of the core of what I want to say, which is that this goes to continuity and change. It's not that the pandemic and the economic crisis and the social and racial justice movements have uncovered new things that never existed before. 
What it's done is turbocharge things that were already going on, like globalization, like economic inequality, like technology, like, you know, the digital revolution, like sustainability, climate change, all of these things. It has turbocharged them and focused attention on them in a way that has put them right in the lap of lawyers in the legal profession. Why? Because all of these things have become legalized. There's been an explosion of new law and regulation following the pandemic. Just think about, you know, everything around employment law and remote work and contact tracing and healthcare law and statutory regulatory law. There's been a huge explosion in new law, not just here, but around the world, right? Trying to get a handle on these big complex problems. And it's up to lawyers to try to adapt and broaden our horizons to try to be a part, not the whole, a part of the solution of these problems. I think for the legal profession, the change that I've been arguing, which again, I started talking about before March of 2020, but now has clearly been accelerated, is that we need to move from what you might think of as a fee-for-service model, in which client comes to us with a legal problem, we go away, we do our mumbo jumbo, a little research in the library, we write a legal memo or we give a legal opinion, and then we give it to them and we send them on their way to what I call an integrated solutions model, where we understand that the client really doesn't have a legal problem. They don't. They have a problem problem of which they would like to take the legal part, quite frankly, and reduce it to as small a part as possible so they could focus on the part they really care about, which is the business, the politics, the human resources, the strategy, the climate change. We have to figure out how to be a part of these more globally integrated solutions. And I think what we're beginning to see is the best lawyers trying to understand law and legal services in this new way. And I think, quite frankly, it's an exciting way for particularly young people to come back, right? The biggest change that happened in 2020, nobody is talking about, is that the first Gen Zs graduated from college. I said, wait a minute, how could that be? They were born in 1998. Yeah, 1998 is 22 years ago. And I, you know, and the fact of the matter is they are millennials on steroids. And so if you put those two generations together, they're 35, 38% of the workforce going to be 50% of the workforce in a decade. So you've got looming generational change. You have these huge problems that are coming to the fore, like climate, social justice, economic inequality, fair globalization, all of which are becoming legalized and digitized at the same time. How do we lawyers become a part of helping the world solve these exciting problems? How do lawyers operate, David, in this way you're describing in what's an increasingly polarized environment, particularly in our country, but globally? this sense of us versus them, which manifests itself in hundreds of ways on the issues you talk about and in more issues, where you've seen members of the profession take positions in some context that shock some of us, quite frankly. This polarization is a problem, and how do lawyers navigate their way through that? 
So this is one of the really toughest, most difficult questions. And it's, we cannot avoid it because we cannot do what we used to do, which is retreat to what I would call technical legalism to say, oh, we're not telling you what the right thing to do is. We're just telling you what the law says. Now, clearly there's still some of that, but in many of these areas, there either is no law or the law is conflicting or the public purposes and the written law is in conflict. You know, when you talk about these big issues, they are inevitably about judgment and about an understanding of the broader purposes. I return to the idea of a world on fire and about how to think about the role of law and justice in a just society. So inevitably, that means you're not going to make everybody happy in a polarized environment, nor can a law firm or a legal department or a private lawyer speak out on every issue. Some of the times you have to think, how do I manage this internally? What are the divisions within my firm? This is one of the challenges, as one of my colleagues is writing about vociferously stakeholder theory, because you know what stakeholders want can be in conflict, even within any given stakeholder interest, employees or communities or suppliers may be in conflict. And yet that doesn't mean that you don't have an obligation to act in some circumstances and to understand what are the core values that are critical to your organization, to your profession and to your people. So I did a webinar on, we did a big research study with EY Legal. That's a whole nother subject. We probably don't have time to talk about it in this podcast, but the role of the big four coming in. But we did a survey of over 2000 general counsels and legal professionals to try to understand what it is that big companies are looking for both internally from their legal departments and legal departments externally from external providers. But we ended up by talking about a phenomenon that I think captures this point, Steve. That is, we're now watching a number of general counsels being elevated to even more important, broader strategic roles in their companies. Patient number one for this is Brad Smith, who went from being the general counsel of Microsoft to the chief legal officer and president of Microsoft. And in that capacity, he now has become Microsoft's chief spokesperson around these core issues, around the role of technology in society, around privacy and security, around how to regulate technology and the internet. And you may have seen, he just reorganized his legal department in a big public memo just came out at the end of June, 2021. And a move that I've told Brad, who sits on my advisory board, so but in full disclosure, but who I think is one of the most thoughtful people in our profession today, I said, this is perhaps one of the most significant things I've seen in a long time, because his legal department is no longer organized around things like M&A and IP and litigation. It's not that they're not there, but those aren't the three pillars. The three pillars are... What is the role of Microsoft in helping to create and enforce sensible regulatory policy, not against all regulations, sensible regulatory policy, 
The second is, what's the role of the department in helping Microsoft create technology that south, that promotes the company and their clients' interest? And third and most important, what is the role of the legal department in helping Microsoft solve the big problems facing the world today? Now, if you think about that, that is a totally different way of conceiving of what a legal department is than the way in which we typically think about law and lawyering. I know Brad a little bit, and he's an incredible person. How do we create more Brads? Where's the responsibility fall for law schools, for firms that tend to supply in-house legal departments, or corporation leadership to understand the importance of the Brad Smiths of the world? So, Steve, you've given me the easiest out for any professor on a multiple choice question because it's D, all of the above. <laughs> uh, we need to start in law school by showing students not just what law is, but what lawyering is and the broader roles that lawyers can play. So I teach a course with Ben Heineman, another legendary general counsel called Challenges of a General Counsel, Lawyers as Leaders. We just taught that on Tuesday as well. And we try to talk about all of the challenges that general counsels face in helping great companies, but not just in the private sector, helping public interest organizations, helping government agencies. We have general counsels from the private sector, government sector, nonprofit sector, talk about the challenges of not just applying the law, but creating law. A lot of what's being created is private ordering, right? Beyond what the legal rules say. As Ben often says, the first question you have to ask is, is it legal? But the last question in the end is, is it right? And that is a complicated dimensions, but that is inevitably on the table. So that law schools need to empirically study the profession by trying to expose these issues and bringing together practitioners and lawyers and academics and students together so we can talk about these issues in a safe space and debate them so that we can make better judgments. But if the law firms don't support that way of thinking and just say, sit in your corner, don't open the door, bill 2,500 hours, and just do this little narrow thing over and over again, guess what? One is the people will leave, and two is you're not going to create that kind of broad gauge person. But then the companies need the CEO as the most important person for the general counsel. If the CEO doesn't believe in this, if the CEO of Microsoft, the GE of Spotify, we had Horacio Gutierrez on this podcast who also has one of these new elevated roles. The CEO has to understand this broader vision too. How do we do that? We do that by fostering exactly the kind of dialogue that this podcast is trying to do. That's an ambitious goal, David. What do you think? The impact is sort of our, our last topic I want to touch on. I know we've run over. You made a mention of law firms telling people to go sit in the corner and just do this thing and people will leave. There's a power, is there not, in terms of a new generation of people coming in and insisting on change from below, so to speak. I mean, we read about it now in terms of remote working and will this generation ever be willing to come back to the office? 
that generational impact has to be profound, yeah? Well, listen, if you ask any lawyer, any, let's say, former chair of a major law firm in Chicago headquartered uh, who just stepped down to be their chief innovation person and podcaster, what's the most important asset that Cyphers Shaw has? You would say, yes, everyone would say it. And we say it all the time. You know, I heart people. People are us. We love our people. People are our asset. And then, not to put too fine a point on it, we often systematically ignore, undervalue, and abuse the people who join us, okay? And it's because we have not ever really developed the kind of sophisticated focus on what it means to care and develop our people that we see in many other industries. And I'm not just talking about let them work remotely and give them a foosball table and give them free lunch or whatever. I'm talking about how you meaningfully develop people. I said in a talk I just gave to a law firm that there are three things that a team must do well in order to be excellent. One, of course, it has to have excellent service to clients. But two, every team member must believe that this team will promote their own development. And third, the team itself must have a learning model in which the team itself as a team gets better and learns over time. I think we know this intuitively, but when we get pressure on number one, we ignore numbers two and three. And in the end, team performance suffers in part because people leave. I think law firms are facing a crisis in retention at the moment, and that crisis has been turbocharged, no question, by the last 18 months. And we're not going to solve it either by ordering people back into the office or paying them more money. I'm not saying money is irrelevant. And actually, ironically, money becomes more relevant the less people believe in the other parts of the equation, because at least they say, well, at least I'm going to make a lot of money and I'll make the money and then I'll quit, which is not good for law firms. And it's got to be that we begin to articulate what is the value of the work we do? And how is that valuable for the meaning and purpose of the people who are doing that work? How is it for their own personal development, but their own sense of being a good person in the world? Because I will ask, I ask law firm partners all the time, how many of you went to law school to get rich? And if you put up your hand, I say, you're an idiot. Because you should have been a venture capitalist or a private equity or an investment banker. Those are the people who get really rich. No, you went to law school because you wanted to do something good in the world. You thought law was connected to broader public purposes. We need to articulate those purposes. We need to draw meaningful connections between those purposes and the work we ask people to do. And then we need to hold each other accountable for making sure that those are real. Is that easy? No. But is it the future? I believe so. That's fabulous. David, we're out of time. Thank you so much for the conversation. It's great catching up with you, my friend. And thank you for all you've done for the profession and continue to do. 
Well, thank you, Steve, for giving me this platform. I hope it's helpful to your listeners. And if listeners want to find out more about what we're doing, please visit the Center on the Legal Professions website. All of our stuff is there. Our goal is really to disseminate information in ways that we hope will be helpful for the profession. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.